Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I want to uh, start the talk tonight with a story that uh, is, is so old on the retreat circuit that it might be new for, for many of you. <clears throat> <clears throat> the second and third generation. <clears throat> um, it's, uh, it's about this uh, rabbi in Russia who each day goes across the town square to the temple to pray. And uh, each day passes the Cossack uh, policeman on patrol of the square. And uh, this one morning, the policeman had a particularly bad morning as he got out of bed and uh, was in a grumpy mood. And as the, uh, the rabbi crossed the square, he said to the rabbi rhetorically, so where are you going, rabbi? And the rabbi looks at him and he says, I don't know. And the policeman gets enraged and he says, what do you mean you don't know? For 25 years, every morning you've been going across this square at this time to go to the temple to pray. You tell me you don't know? What are you trying to make a fool of me? He says, I'll show you. And with that, he takes him by the scruff of the neck and carries him across the square towards the, uh, the jail. And he brings him into the jail, opens up the cell, and just as he's about to put him in the cell, the rabbi turns to me and says, see, you don't know. (laughs) See, it was new for some of you, I could tell. Tonight I want to talk about how we believe our thoughts and the problems that come when we believe them and the freedom that could come when we see through them, when we see that they're just limitations on reality imposed by our beliefs. One other uh, expression of this, uh, this understanding is from the Korean Zen master Sun Sunim, who uh, has very simple phrases that have great power that are the essence of his teachings. And one of his main teachings is what's called don't know mind, as he says in his thick Korean accent. You know, what's the meaning of life? Don't know. Where did you come from? Don't know. What's going to happen tomorrow? Don't know. And he says, just keep this don't know mind and you see what life presents. But it's not so easy to keep a don't-know mind, because thoughts seem so real. And with our thoughts, we somehow have an illusion of control of our reality, that if we somehow understand why something's happening, or what's happening, or what's going to happen next, based on what happened in the past, there's a false sense of security that we create for ourselves. However, as you've seen, 
probably many, many times today, how those thoughts are just creations of our mind that have very little substance at all. And our practice that we've been doing here for the last four, four and a half or one and a half weeks is to see what's actually true. One aspect of what's true is seeing the emptiness of the thoughts that we impose on reality. That's one way to look at the step of the Eightfold Path that's called right thought. Understanding the nature of thought, understanding how empty it is. And once you see how empty it is, you can choose which thoughts are in alignment with your higher purpose. And that becomes right thought turning into right aspiration. But until you see how empty those thoughts are, you believe each one. And they have tremendous power of over us to frighten us, to seduce us, to excite us, to confuse us, as well as to bring us joy and happiness and peace. It depends what thoughts you're believing. So that's where when you can see the emptiness of the thoughts, you can give energy and empower the ones that really serve. But until you see them for what they are, you don't have much choice and you empower most that come through. Just as a, an exercise, just to, to show the power of, of thought that I, I like to do, just close your eyes and I'm going to say a word and notice your response. Trouble. Trouble. Notice any images that come to your mind. Notice how it feels in your body. I won't leave you here. So take a few breaths. You can erase the blackboard. And I'll say another word. Kindness. Kindness. Notice any images that come up. Notice how that feels. Okay, if you like, you can open your eyes. You notice any difference between the two? Those are just two words plucked out of thin air or wherever, out of my mind, traveling through space, hitting your ear, your brain makes, uh, uh, cognizes it and has a whole response to it. Just from two non-sequitur, unrelated words. Can you imagine what happens when you replay certain patterns of thought over and over and over what the effect is on your being? It's something to become quite attuned to and understand. We want to figure things out. We want to get to the bottom of reality. But we use our thinking mind to figure it out. And that's not 
usually how understanding works. This line in, in the Third Zen Patriarch, actually two that come to mind. One, one line says, um, to seek the big mind with the small discriminating, figuring out mind, to seek the big mind with the small mind is the greatest of all mistakes. Another line from there, it says, stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. Isn't that how it works? When you have an insight, you know, this is called insight meditation and every now and then an insight emerges. It's not usually because you figured your way through and were very clever and said, aha, I knew it all along. All that does is end up patting yourself on the back saying, pretty smart. That's not insight. Usually an insight comes when you're not trying to figure anything out, when you let go of that analyzing mind, and then something just comes together. And there's that experience of, aha, oh wow. And there's a surprise in it, precisely because you weren't trying to figure it out. When our thoughts play over and over in our mind, they develop into beliefs. It's one thing to have a random thought go through that you react to. It's quite another to have it harden into a belief because then that becomes the the filter through which you see reality. Beliefs define our reality. As the Buddha says in the the, uh, Dhammapada, we are what we think. With our thoughts, we make the world. I'll share my Calvin and Hobbes cartoon for the evening. It's been uh, kind of a uh, tradition these last few few nights, but I, I have, I've saved the Calvin and Hobbes cartoon for a number of years. He says, uh, Calvin says, here I am, happy and content. That next frame. But not euphoric. <laughs> <laughs> the third so I'm no longer happy and content. <laughs> In fact, I'm unhappy and miserable. And in the last frame, I should have quit thinking while I was ahead. <laughs> One thought comes, you know, hey, I'm doing great. You feel wonderful. Another thought, oh, but it's not as good as, and you feel lousy. Isn't that amazing how it works? how we confuse ourselves. So I offer you a practice that has been very helpful for me that I'll I'll, um, put out now and then then go in more detail into this this process. A practice that is basically noticing any limiting beliefs that I might be putting on top of reality. Just seeing them releases their hold. 
once you see it, it's like you've named the demon. You know, in mythological tales, there can be a dragon or a demon and um, can be very foreboding and, and awesome. And when the hero or the heroine finds out the name of the demon, it loses its magical power. In the same way, once we see what thought we're believing, it loses its hold on us. So the, the practice, the way that I do this practice, is just asking myself when I'm getting confused, what thought am I believing right now? And usually, if I can be quiet enough or remember to ask that question, it becomes obvious. And if I can see the emptiness of the thought, it's like in the moment that, I, that it's recognized, it dissolves. It's been seen. And in this way, we can just play with our mind. See, it's all a creation of mind anyway, so why not play with it? You know, the Tibetans talk about playing with form, playing in the world of form. My uh, uh, teacher Punjaji would say, you know, playing in the dream, it's all a dream. Well, it's easier to wake up from a good dream than a bad one. So if you're finding yourself in the middle of a nightmare, just to see, ah, it's a dream. You might even substitute uh, a more wholesome dream, that is, a pleasant thought or a, a less frightening thought or a thought that gives you inspiration. Napoleon Hill, a wonderful author, uh, wrote this book, Think and Grow Rich, which sounds like a, a pretty, uh, doesn't sound like a very Buddhist book. It's a very high book, though. And his main teaching in that book is whatever you can conceive and believe, you will receive. That's basically it. We create our reality. And if we can imagine it and then believe it, that's what becomes manifest. So I want to ask you as I explore this with you, to once again go inside and just ask what thoughts or thought do you believe that creates your reality? If you need some mental jogging, you can just uh, fill in any one of these blanks. If only, or I'm someone who never, or I should, or I need to, or it would be terrible if, any one of those, if nothing else comes to mind. And just imagine what it would be like if this thought had no power over you. If you saw through its insubstantiality 
and we're free of its power. What then? Okay. I offer you some common beliefs. This is from communications course that um, uh, is a wonderful, wonderful course. Just seeing how the mind creates reality. These are some very common irrational ideas. I should be thoroughly competent, adequate, and achieving in all possible respects. And we usually think in terms of superlatives. It should always be, or it should never be. That's how we get confused in having this unrealistic ideal of what reality should be like. If things do not go or stay the way I very much want them to, it would be awful catastrophic or terrible. Do you ever get caught in that one? Today? This afternoon? My early childhood experiences must continue to control me and determine my emotions and behavior. Here's another one. I should become upset over my or other people's problems or behavior. One last one I'll read. There is invariably one right, precise, and perfect solution, and it would be terrible if this perfect solution is not found. I used to think when I was, uh, when I was in my teens that there was this big, I imagine, this big book in the sky, right? And in the back of the book, remember when you were, you, did you, if you went to school and with math textbooks that had the answers in the back, you know? And in the back, you know, finally, if you give up, you know, on page 365, there was the answer. And I used to think, what is the right answer? If I could only see the back of that big book in the sky, what's the right answer to this problem? And life is much more complex than that. Sometimes people come, in, come into interviews and say, you know, what's the right way to handle this? As if there's some kind of, you know, Buddhist recipe book that says, when this happens, this is the way you should always do it. Not, not usually. And how we hold our reality, what we're believing, is, uh, is a way that, that frames our experience. We can hold, two people can have the same exact experience, or one person from one day to the next, and depending upon where their energy is, or what their mood is, or what their conditioned belief system is, have a very different response like in, uh, in uh, the Chinese, um, the uh, characters for crisis, the word crisis, are danger plus opportunity. It's a great way to approach crisis, isn't it? 
a lot different than, oh my God, the sky is going to fall any moment. Sometimes I've been noticing this recently in my, uh, my own experience that the last thing that you state as far as reality is the one that stays with you. For instance, um, saying, uh, suppose you've had a pretty good retreat and, and all of a sudden you go up against the wall. You've had a rough day. Okay. Now, one way to say that is, I've had a really wonderful retreat and now I'm... Now well, let's do it a different way. I've had a rough day and I've had a really great retreat. <clears throat> or, I've been having a really good retreat up until now and I've had one hell of a lousy day. It's the same reality. Usually the last one that you report of that reality is the one that sticks. Although my life has had some good things in it, it's been filled with suffering. That's one way to hold one's life. Or, although I've had my share of suffering, my life's been really blessed. It's just how you look at it, right? It's what you believe. There are a number of different ways that we believe our story. One very strong story that we keep, that we believe often, is about our past. You know, I was... I was never loved. You know. Somebody looks at you the wrong way and, oh yes, I'm, I'm not very lovable. I was never loved. I'm unlovable. That's a very tough story to carry around. Never. I've had this tremendous uh, tragedy happen in my life. And sometimes that can define somebody's life. And I know a lot of times on retreats, it's amazing what people have encountered, you know, the the dukkha. And it's also amazing how some people, through real practice, can use that dukkha as a, a stepping stone to the deepest kind of compassion a number of a few teachers I can think of who went through real trauma and abuse are seen to be just the embodiment of compassion, and people can turn to them and speak to them and feel understood by them. That's very different than defining your life by a particular tragedy and being stuck there. It's not to say that we should pretend that everything is processed. You know, you can't just bypass it and say, okay, I shouldn't be feeling the way I do now. No, that's just another belief. You know, you need to honor the process of any pains that you go through and the the grieving or whatever kind of dukkha that you experience. 
but to hold out the possibility that this is your share of suffering to wake up to that can really be your gift to others that you meet. It's a whole different way to hold that process. It also means not believing others' evaluations of what you should hold on to. You know, oh yes, that was so terrible. Ah, you, you're damaged for life now. I'll share with you some uh, some things to consider about what what people rose above. The parents of the famous opera singer Enrico Caruso wanted him to be an engineer. His teacher said he had no voice at all and could not sing. The sculptor Rodin's father said, I have an idiot for a son. Described as the worst pupil in the school, Rodin failed three times to secure admittance to the school of art. His uncle called him uneducable. Fred Astaire's first screen test. Can't act, slightly bald, can dance a little. (laughs) You know, if we keep on believing not only our own story, but the stories that other people tell about us, we're doomed to keep living that reality. And it's just a story. It's, a, it's an important story to understand and, and um, grow from and wake up from. And it's your story. It's just a very limited part of who you are. Another aspect of, of this, besides the past, is the self-image that we carry about us. How you hold your particular shadows, the things that you most are afraid of people discovering. You know that thought, if they only knew who I really am, underneath this nice spiritual exterior is one rotten SOB, you know, or one loser, or one frightened little kid, or one whatever you call it, you know, egomaniac. If they only knew. We all have our shadows. I remember um, uh, actually when uh, I uh, got turned on to this book, Jack turned me on to the book uh, Meeting the Shadow. It's a a wonderful wonderful anthology. And the subtitle of it, which was as important as the whole rest of the book, Meeting the Shadow the hidden power in the dark side of human nature. And I read that and I thought, wow, how neat. I've got a shadow too. You know? <laughs> it's another way to hold all that energy, not to hold it, but to understand all that energy that we keep suppressed because we're afraid that people will find us, find us out, and to see, ah, This is part of the human experience, the human condition. It's okay. We don't have to hide. Or we don't have to be dwelling besides hiding. Sometimes people become so immersed in their self-image, and often a negative one, that it's hard to move out 
of that comfort zone. That just becomes the, the reality that we're in. I, um, uh, I remember seeing this painting by this wonderful teacher, Michelle Cassou, who teaches the painting experience that uh, a number of people in our community have done, uh, where you just uh, you don't censor what's, uh, what's coming through and just let your hand paint. It's like Vipassana on paper. It's a wonderful practice that, that I did for, for a while, a number of years ago. And Michelle was um, sharing a series of her paintings that the theme of death kept on, on coming up. And there was this one painting that is indelible in my mind where uh, she had died. And she said, I was, I was down underground in the, uh, in the coffin. Uh, and there was a, a shaft from, from the coffin through the ground up through the, um, through the sky into this heaven realm with uh, Buddha figures above. And she said, there I was down in this coffin and there were worms eating my rotting corpse and it was in decay and it was wet and warm and kind of you know, gross. And she said she knew all she had to do was uh, just decide to move up the shaft into the Buddha fields. But she said, it was so comfortable down there in the coffin, you know. It was home. It became home. It was just kind of the place I felt like hanging out because it was familiar. And sometimes, often, we do that. We hang out in the familiar even when it's painful. Oh, suffering? Oh, yeah, that's home. Happiness, joy, oh my God, I don't know if I could bear it. You know? Not that we say that consciously, but very often we get run by that belief. Oh, this is home, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is who I am. So our past, believing our, our image of ourselves and, and staying with the familiar Another way that we get lost in beliefs is having the habit of looking for a certain reality. We see what we look for. You know, if you walk down a street and you're hungry, you will probably notice the restaurants around. Or if you're feeling a bit horny, you'll notice all the attractive potential partners that you might have. So what we look for, which is often a conditioned kind of response, we will find. One friend I I know who, very beautiful and wise and um, kind being, um, has a habit of looking for what's off in the picture, in whatever picture she's involved in, particularly when it comes to, to herself and her reality. Oh, you know, if only this were different, or, oh, yeah, this is, this is very nice, but there's this, you know. And it's been very hard for her to experience all the joys around her. There's a, 
a practice that Thich Nhat Hanh has that I love. He says, we often ask, what's wrong? Doing so, we invite painful seeds of sorrow to come up and manifest. We feel suffering, anger, and depression, and produce more such seeds. We would be much happier if we tried to stay in touch with the healthy, joyful seeds inside of us and around us. We should learn to ask, what's not wrong? And be in touch with that. There's so many things in the world in our bodies and feelings and perception and consciousness that are wholesome, refreshing, and healing. If we block ourselves, if we stay in the prison of our sorrow, we will not be in touch with these healing elements. So what we look for, we will find. Do you notice what it is that you look for that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy? Hi. Uh, have mentioned before that uh, Maharaji Neem Karoli Baba, who's a great inspiration of mine, has this wonderful instruction. He says, keep looking for the good around you. Keep looking for the good in people that you meet. That if you keep on tuning into the good, that's what will, will be seen. And it's true. You know, if you're in a room with somebody who sees all your flaws, who sees everything that's wrong with you. How do you feel being seen that way? You start feeling klutzy, you start feeling you know, small. How different it is if you're in a room with somebody who sees your beauty. You know, that's one of the, the gifts that the Dalai Lama has. You know, he sees the bodhisattva in everyone And that's what gets brought out. Because if that is seen in you, the power of thought is tremendously potent. That's what gets evoked. So in that same way, what you look for in others, you will see. I know this is possible. In my own experience, I went around assuming that things wouldn't work out. I was really a a, a pessimist. And then it occurred to me, I wasn't getting any gold stars and any points for just assuming that things wouldn't work out. And I had this epiphany, I wonder what it would be like if I just pretended that things would work out and acted as if they would. And I tried this experiment for a week, I was about 21 at the time, and lo and behold, as I started to act as if things would work out, they did. And I thought, this is pretty cool. And over time, I changed. What you look for, you'll find. Another way that we create our belief systems is by having some ideas about what should be happening, our expectations, particularly around practice. It happens all the time because you come to practice and you want to do it right. You want to, you know, here you are putting in a sincere intention to, uh, to learn and to grow and working really hard. You want some payoff for it, some good to come from it. And usually the problem comes when we've got this timetable, you know, well... 
am I happier yet? <laughs> no, this is taking longer than I thought. Oh, this is not working. Oh, I can't do this. Oh, this is a complete waste of time. Or when you have a clear sitting, I think we've talked about, the problem comes with thinking, ah, now I figured it out. And then you go back the next time remembering very well. And what did I do to blow it? I don't get it. What kind of expectations do you have about practice? I should be more fill-in-the-blank. Have you had any in the last few days? If you have, be very kind with what you see, but see it. See that that's just a thought that you are imposing on your actual experience. And that becomes the thing that affects your whole reality because in the moment that you have, I should be more, there's a kind of contraction that comes. And obviously, when you're in that contracted space, you can't see clearly what's happening. How can there be the openness that you're longing for or the wisdom that comes from clarity of seeing when there's this contraction that says, oh, I should be more? It doesn't work. What kind of stories or expectations or beliefs do you have about freedom? Whatever story you tell yourself can either be inspiring or discouraging. You you see the Buddha or you hear other people who've, uh, who've awakened and in one aspect of practice or one phase of practice, you might be tremendously inspired. Yes, that's possible. Amazing. I will do it. Another phase of practice, you might say, forget it, not for me. I couldn't do that. You know? How do you hold that image of the Buddha or of people that you think of that awakened? Is it something that's possible for you? For years in in my own practice, first I was very inspired by that possibility of complete freedom. I just felt so deeply in my heart that the Buddha did do it, and it's possible. And one of the, the lines that was very moving for me was the Buddha's words saying, if it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not tell you to do so. It's a beautiful line. It's true. And I was very inspired by it. Then I got into a phase where this transcendent experience where I would somehow stop my mind and I don't know what would happen, some kind of blank where my, in my image the, the mind would stop and the body stop processing and then it would happen. You know? And I kept on trying to make that happen over and over and over. And it became very, very discouraging. Especially when I'd hear talks by great masters saying, may you speedily experience the full 
awakening of Nibbana, you know. And I'd say to myself, yeah, right, okay. <laughs> and then getting the teachings of enlightenment happening right in this moment. Enlightenment is here. Any single moment, we just put down our ideas and open up to what's here and let that freedom, which is imminent, which is here all the time, just shine through. Just one little decision to flip that belief system to hold it a different way. And I became very, very inspired for practice. I'm not saying one is right and one isn't right, because you might be very inspired by the possibility of absolute, complete awakening through some transcendent experience. And that does happen. It happened to the Buddha. So I'm just saying that use the one that works for you, because you don't know what's so. That's my take on things these days. Don't know. What is enlightenment? Don't know. You know. It makes it a whole lot simpler. And using what does inspire me to practice, to put my heart into practice. The belief that completely gets us caught, which is really the... Um, the essence of what the Buddha taught is belief in this idea of self. This idea of a separate self from everything else in this fabric of life. Believing that somehow I'm different and I'm not connected and that I've got to protect or that I know who I really am, that there is some essence that is me, which on one hand is so, there is a uniqueness to you, but to think of that as a fixed, unchanging thing that can be located is missing the point, is seeing that you are the process of life expressing itself through this form. And that belief in self runs very, very deep. In order to see through it, we have to become like a little child again. That's so innocent that is just open to the world of wonder and mystery and letting go of any kind of concepts of who we are to see that we're something much greater than this idea that we might carry about ourselves or about what it means to be alive in a self. This is from Nisargadat Maharaj. He says, I am now 74 years old, and yet... I feel that I'm an infant. I feel clearly that in spite of all the changes, I'm a child. My guru told me, that child, which is you even now, is your real self. 
go back to that state of pure being where the I am is still in its purity before it got contaminated with this I am or that I am, your burden is of false self-identifications. Abandon them all, my guru told me. Trust me, I tell you, you are divine. Take it as the absolute truth. I did believe him and soon realized how wonderfully true and accurate were his words. Do you remember that purity? I think that's what we touch from time to time here on retreat. It is for me. That place that is beyond the story and beyond even some sense of meanness, but just something that illuminates through us, like Guy was talking about last night. Radiant, pure, luminous is this mind, the Buddha said. So, seeing through our limiting beliefs, our limiting thoughts, what Krishnamurti called Freedom from the Known. It's a wonderful book that he wrote, and the title says it all. Freedom from the Known not to be bound in our patterns and believing them. But when we see our beliefs with clarity and with kindness, then we can see how empty they are. And once you see how empty they are, there's limitless possibilities. Just try it. I really invite you to try this as a practice, just asking yourself, what thought am I believing right now? Limitless possibilities. Wilma Rudolph was the 20th of 22 children. She was born prematurely and her survival was doubtful. When she was four years old, she contracted double pneumonia and scarlet fever, which left her with a paralyzed left leg. At age nine, she removed the metal leg brace that she had been dependent on and began to walk without it. By 13, she had developed a rhythmic walk, which doctors said was a miracle. That same year, she decided to become a runner. She entered a race and came in last. For the next few years, every race she entered, she came in last. Everyone told her to quit, but she kept on running. One day, she actually won a race. And then another. From then on, she won every race she entered. Eventually, this little girl, who was told she would never walk again, went on to win three Olympic gold medals and be one of our great Olympic heroes. You don't know. You have no idea the possibilities. One suggestion I would 
encourage you to um, to explore with these different thoughts is just noticing the tone of the thought as it comes through. Because we have lots of different thoughts. Some of them are confused and some of them are very, very wise. So it's not to say that all thought should be disregarded. Thought is not the enemy. Thought is just a natural process, but to discern between ones that serve and ones that don't. And if you can start to notice the tone in your mind, the thoughts that are coming through with a harsh tone, with a a contracted space that says, you really should do this, or this is really terrible, or why don't you this, or why did that have to happen with that edge to it. That's very different from the thoughts that come through in a very connected place that say, this feels right. This doesn't feel right. Oh, let's try this. That's just connecting with the bodhicitta, that seed of enlightenment, of awakening inside all of us. And we can start to listen and trust that more and more. And the ones that come through with that harsh, critical edge, we can just see for what they are. Thoughts arising and passing. Ah, that's a thought. Okay? I don't need to believe it. What thought am I believing now? So...